0: I am here with Jay Shapiro. Jay, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So we have a fun project to talk about here, and let's see if I can remember the, the genesis of this. I, I think uh, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night one night, realizing mm-hmm. that more or less my entire catalog of podcasts was, if not the entire thing, maybe a, you know, conservatively speaking, you know, fifty percent of all the podcasts were evergreen which is to say that their content was basically as good today as the day I recorded them, but because of the nature of the medium, they would never be perceived as such, and people really don't tend to go back into the catalog and listen to, you know, a three year old podcast. And yet there's something insufficient about just recirculating them in my podcast feed or, or elsewhere. And so I and um, Jaron, my partner in crime here we're trying to think about how to give all of this content new life, and then we thought of you just independently turning your creative uh, intelligence loose on the catalog, and um, now I will properly introduce you as someone mm-hmm. who who uh, should be doing that. Perhaps you can introduce yourself. Just tell tell us uh, what you have done over these many years and, and the kinds of things you've focused on.
1: Yeah. Well... I'm a filmmaker first and foremost, but um, I, I think my story and my genesis of, of being maybe the right person to tap here is um, probably indicative or, or representative of a decent portion of your audience. I'm just guessing. I'm 40 now, which mm. pegs me in college when 9-11 hit. it was my late in my second year. I guess it would have been early if it was September. And, um, you know, I never heard of you at all at that point. I, uh, I was an atheist and just didn't think too much about that kind of stuff. I was fully on board with any atheist things I saw coming across my, uh, my world. But then 9-11 hit and I was on a very, very liberal college campus and the kind of questions that were popping up in my mind and I was asking myself were uncomfortable for me. I just didn't know what to do with them. I really had no formal philosophical training. And I kind of just buried them you know under under the weight of my own confusion and mm. or shame or just whatever kind of brew a lot of us were probably feeling at the time. And then I discovered your your work with the end of faith, right when you sort of were were responding to the same thing, and a lot of your language you you were uh, philosophically trained and, and maybe sharper with your language for better or worse, which which we found out later mm. was complicated. Resonated with me, and I started following along with with your work and the Four Horsemen and Hitchens and Dawkins and that sort of whole crowd. And I'm sure I wasn't alone. And then I paid close, special attention to what you were doing, which I actually included in one of the pieces that I ended up putting together in in this series. But with a talk you gave in Australia, you know, you you, (laughs) I don't have to tell you about your career. But again, I was following along as as you were on sort of this atheist circuit. And I was interested, but whenever you would talk about sort of the, the hard work of secularism and the hard work of atheism, this in particular, I'm thinking of your, your talk called Death in the Present Moment, right after Christopher Hitchens had died. I'm actually curious how quickly you threw that together, because I know you were supposed to, or you were planning on speaking about free will, mm. and you ended up giving this whole other talk. And that one, and I'll save it because I definitely put that one in our compilation, but it's, it, it struck me as, okay, this guy's up to something a little different. And the questions that he's asking are really different. And I was just on board with that ride. So I, I became a fan. And like probably many of your listeners started to really follow and listen closely and became a student. And hopefully, like any good student started to disagree with my teacher a bit and, and slowly get the confidence to push back and have my own thoughts and, Maybe find find the the weaknesses and strengths of of what you were up to, and you know your work exposed me and many many other people. I'm sure to a lot of great thinkers. And maybe you don't love this, but sometimes the people who disagree with you that you introduce us to on this side of 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 the the microphone, um, we think are right, and that's a great credit to you as well for just giving them the air. And and maybe on some. Really nerdy, esoteric things. I'm one of them at this point now. Because to back up way to the beginning of the story, I was at a university where I was well on my way to a film degree, which is what I ended up getting. But when 9/11 hit, I started taking a lot more courses in a track that they had, which I think is fairly unique at the at the time. Maybe one, maybe still one of the only programs where you can actually major in Holocaust studies, which Mm. sort of sits in between the the history and philosophy kind of departments and And I started taking a bunch of courses in there, and that that's where I was first exposed to sort of the formal philosophy, language and education and and that was so useful for me. So I was just on board and and now hopefully I you know I, I swim deep in those waters and know my way around the lingo, and it's super helpful. but yeah, it was it was almost you know Moore's law of bringing up the Nazis was those were, those were the first times, actually in courses called like resistance during the Holocaust and things like that where, you know, I first was exposed to the words like deontology and consequentialism and utilitarianism and a lot of moral ethics stuff. And then mm. I went further on my own into sort of the theory of mind and this kind of stuff. But yeah, I consider myself in this weird new digital landscape that we're in a bit of a, a student of the school of Sam Harris. But then again, like hopefully any good student, I've branched off and have my own sort of thoughts and, and framings. And so that is, it's, I'm definitely in these pieces in this series of that we're calling The Essential Sam Harris. It is, I can't help but sort of put my writing and my framework on it, or at least hope that the, the people and the challenges that you've encountered and continue to encounter, whether they're right or wrong or making drastic mistakes, I want to give everything in it a really fair hearing. So there's there's times I'm sure where the listener will hear... <laughs> my own hand of opinion coming in there, and I'm sure you know the areas as well. But most times I'm just trying to to give the an open door to the mystery and why these subjects interest you in the first place, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I should remind both of us that we met because you were directing a film yeah. uh, focused on uh, Majid Nawaz and me around uh, our book, uh, Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And also, we've brought into this project another person who I think you yes. met independently. I don't remember, but but Megan Phelps Roper, who's been a guest on the podcast and someone who I have long admired. And she's doing the, the voiceover work uh, yeah. in this series, and she happens to have a great voice. So I'm very happy to be working with her.
1: Yeah, I, I did meet her independently. Your archive, I think you said three or four years old. Your archive is over 10 years old now. <laughs> and, right is it's And I was diving into the earliest days of it. And there are some fascinating conversations that age really interestingly. And I'm curious. I mean, I think this project, again, it's for, it's for fans, it's for listeners, but it's for people who might hate you also, or critics of you, or people who are sure you were missing something or wrong about something, or even yourself, to go back and listen to certain conversations for example, one with like Dan Carlin, who hosts Hardcore mm-hmm. History. You had him on, I think that conversation is seven or eight years ago now. And the part that I really resurfaced, it's actually in the morality episode, is full of, of details and, and philosophies and politics and, and moral philosophies. Regarding things like intervention in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And at the time of your recording, of course, we had no idea how you know Afghanistan might look a decade from from yeah. then. And but now we kind of do. And it's it, it it's not a um if people listen to these carefully, it's not about, oh, this side of the conversation turned out to be right and this kind of kind of part turned out to be wrong. But certain things hit our ears a little differently, even on, even on this first topic of artificial intelligence. I mean, I think that conversation continues to be evolve in a way where the issues that you bring up are evergreen, but hopefully evolving as well, just as far as their application goes. So, yeah, Yeah. so I think you, I, I would love to hear your thoughts listening back to some of those. And in fact, to reference the film we made together, a lot of that film was you doing that actively in live given a specific topic of looking back and reassessing language about how it might you know land politically in that project so yeah but this this goes into to really different including an episode about social media which changes every day yeah but changes by the hour to, yeah and a conversation you have with Jack Dorsey is now fascinating for all kinds of different reasons that at the time couldn't have been so yeah, it's evergreen, but it's also just like re- new life in all of them, right. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I look forward to hearing it. Just to be clear, this has been very much your project. I mean, I, I haven't heard most of this uh, material since the time I recorded it and released it. And, you know, you've gone back and created episodes on a theme where you've pulled together mm-hmm. five or six conversations and kind of intercut material from five or six different episodes, and then added your own interstitial pieces, which uh, you have written and Megan Phelps Roper is reading. So it's just these are very much you know, their own documents. And um, as you say, you don't agree with me about everything. And you're occasionally hmm. you're, you're shading different points from your own point of view. And so yeah, I look forward to, to hearing it. And we'll be dropping the whole series here in the podcast feed. Uh, If you're in the public feed, as always, you'll be getting partial episodes, and if you're in the subscriber feed, you'll be getting full episodes. And uh, the first will be on artificial intelligence, and then there are many other topics, consciousness, violence, belief, free will, morality, death, and others beyond that.
1: Yeah. There's one on existential threat and nuclear war that um, I'm still piecing together, but it's that one's pretty harrowing. <laughs> nice. One of your areas of interest. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Great. Well, um, thanks for the collaboration, Jay. I, I'm uh, again, I'm I'm a consumer of this, uh, probably more than a, a collaborator at this point, because I have only heard part of w- what you've done here. So I will be uh, I'll be eager to listen as well. But uh, thank you for the work that you've done.
1: No, thank you. And I'll just say like, it's, it's, uh, you, you're gracious to allow someone to do this who, who does have some, you know, again, most of our, my disagreements with you are pretty deep and nerdy and, and, uh, esoteric kind of philosophy stuff, but it's incredibly gracious that you've given me the opportunity to do it. And then hopefully, again, I'm a bit of a representative for people who have been, uh, in the passenger seat of your public project of thinking out loud for over a decade now. And uh, if I can, if I can, you know, be, be a voice for that, that part of the crowd, it's just, it's an honor to do it. And, and they're a lot of fun too, a ton of fun. There's a ton of audio, you know, like thought experiments that we play with and hopefully bring to life uh, in your ears a little bit, including in this very first one with artificial intelligence. So yeah, I hope people enjoy it.
0: I do as well. So now we bring you Megan Phelps Roper on the topic of artificial intelligence.
2: Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of Artificial Intelligence. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest. And at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold. And your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others— In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of identity and the self, consciousness, and free will. So, get ready. Let's make sense of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is an area of resurgent interest in the general public. Its seemingly eminent arrival first garnered wide attention in the late 60s, with thinkers like Marvin Minsky and Isaac Asimov writing provocative and thoughtful books about the burgeoning technology and concomitant philosophical and ethical quandaries, science fiction novels, comic books, and TV shows were flooded with stories of killer robots and encounters with superintelligent artificial life forms hiding out on nearby planets which we thought we would soon be visiting on the backs of our new rocket ships. Over the following decades, the excitement and fervor look to have faded from view in the public imagination. But in recent years, it has made an aggressive comeback. Perhaps this is because the fruits of the AI revolution and the devices and programs once only imagined in those science fiction stories have started to rapidly show up in impressive and sometimes disturbing ways all around us. Our smartphones, cars, doorbells, watches, games, thermostats, vacuum cleaners, light bulbs, and glasses now have embedded algorithms running on increasingly powerful hardware which navigate, dictate, or influence not just our locomotion, but our entertainment choices, our banking, our politics, our dating lives, and just about everything else. It seems every other TV show or movie that appears on a streaming service is birthed out of a collective interest, fear, or otherwise general fascination with the ethical, societal, and philosophical implications of artificial intelligence. There are two major ways to think about the threat of what is generally called AI. One is to think about how it will disrupt our psychological states or fracture our information landscape. And the other is to ponder how the very nature of the technical details of its development may threaten our existence. This compilation is mostly focused on the latter concern because Sam is certainly amongst those who are quite worried about the existential threat of the technical development and arrival of AI. Now, before we jump into the clips, there are a few concepts that you'll need to onboard to find your footing. You'll hear the terms Artificial General Intelligence, or AGI, and Artificial Superintelligence, or ASI, used in these conversations. Both of these terms refer to an entity which has a kind of intelligence that can solve a nearly infinitely wide range of problems. We humans have brains which display this kind of adaptable intelligence. We can climb a ladder by controlling our legs and arms in order to retrieve a specific object from a high shelf with our hands. And we use the same brain to do something very different, like recognize emotions in the tone of a voice of a romantic partner.
3: I look forward to infinity with you.
2: That same brain can play a game of checkers against a young child who we might also be coyly trying to let win, or play a serious game of competitive chess against a skilled adult. That same brain can also simply lift a coffee mug to our lips, not just to ingest nutrients and savor the taste of the beans, but also to send a subtle social signal to a friend at the table to let them know that their story is dragging on a bit. All of that kind of intelligence is embodied and contained in the same system, namely, our brains. AGI refers to a human level of intelligence, which doesn't surpass what our brightest humans can accomplish on any given task, while ASI references an intelligence which performs at, well, superhuman levels. This description of flexible intelligence is different from a system which is programmed or trained to do one particular thing incredibly well, like arithmetic, or painting straight lines on the sides of a car, or playing computer chess, or guessing large prime numbers, or displaying music options to a listener based on the observable lifestyle habits of like-minded users in a certain demographic. That kind of system has an intelligence that is sometimes referred to as narrow or weak AI. But even that kind of thing can be quite worrisome from the standpoint of weaponization or preference manipulation. You'll hear Sam voice his concerns throughout these conversations, and he'll consistently point to our underestimation of the challenge that even narrow AI poses. So, there are dangers and serious questions to consider, no matter which way we go with the AI topic. But as you'll also hear in this compilation, not everyone is as concerned about the technical existential threat of AI as Sam is. Much of the divergence in levels of concern stems from initial differences on the fundamental conceptual approach towards the nature of intelligence. Defining intelligence is notoriously slippery and controversial. But you're about to hear one of Sam's guests offer a conception which distills intelligence to a type of observable competence at actualizing desired tasks, or an ability to manifest preferred future states through intentional current action and intervention. You can imagine a linear gradient indicating more or less of the amount of this competence as you move along it. This view places our human intelligence on a continuum along with bacteria, ants, chickens, honeybees, chimpanzees, all of the potential undiscovered alien life forms, and, of course, artificial intelligence, which perches itself far above our lowly human competence. This presents some rather alarming questions. Stephen Hawking once issued a famous warning that perhaps we shouldn't be actively seeking out intelligent alien civilizations, since we'd likely discover a culture which is far more technologically advanced than ours. And, if our planet's history provides any lessons, it seems to prove that when technologically mismatched cultures come into contact, it usually doesn't work out too well for the lesser-developed one. Are we bringing that precise suicidal encounter into reality as we set out to develop artificial intelligence? That question alludes to what is known as the value alignment problem. But before we get to that challenge, let's go to our first clip, which starts to lay out the important definitional foundations and distinction of terms in the landscape of AI. The thinker you're about to meet is the decision theorist and computer scientist, Eliezer Yudkowsky. Yudkowsky begins here by defending this linear gradient perspective on intelligence and offers an analogy to consider how we might be mistaken about intelligence in a similar way to how we once were mistaken about the nature of fire. It's clear that Sam is aligned and attracted to Eliezer's run at this question. And consequently, both men end up sharing a good deal of unease about the implications that all of this has for our future. This is from episode 116, which is entitled A.I. Racing Towards the Brink.
0: Let's just start with the basic picture and, and define some terms. I suppose we should define intelligence first and then jump into the differences between strong and weak or general versus narrow AI. Do you want to start us off on that? Sure. Preamble disclaimer, though. The the field in general, like
4: not everyone you ask would give you the same definition of intelligence. And a lot of times in cases like those, it's good to sort of go back to observational basics. We know that in a certain way, human beings seem a lot more competent than chimpanzees, which seems to be a similar dimension to the one where chimpanzees are more competent than mice, or that mice are more competent competent than spiders. And people have tried various theories about what this dimension is. They've tried various definitions of it. But if you went back a few centuries and asked somebody to define fire, the less wise ones would say, ah, flyer, fire is the release of phlogiston. Fire is one of the four elements. And the truly wise ones would say, well, fire is the sort of orangey bright hot stuff that comes out of wood and like spreads along wood. And they would tell you what it looked like and put that prior to their theories of what it was. So what this mysterious thing looks like is that humans can build space shuttles and go to the moon, and mice can't. And we think it has something to do with our brains.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think we can make it more abstract than that. Tell me if you think this is not generic enough to be accepted by most people in the field. It's whatever intelligence may be in specific contexts. Generally speaking, it's the ability to meet goals, perhaps across a diverse range of environments. And we might want to add that it's at least implicit in intelligence that interests us it means an ability to do this flexibly rather than by rote following the same strategy again and again blindly. Does that seem like a reasonable starting point?
4: Uh, I I think that that would get fairly widespread agreement and it like matches up well with some of the things that are in AI textbooks. If I'm allowed to sort of take it a bit further and begin injecting my own viewpoint into it, I, I would refine it and say that by achieve goals, we mean something like, squeezing the the measure of possible futures higher in your preference ordering if we took all the possible outcomes and we ranked them from the ones you like least to the ones you like most then as you achieve your goals you're sort of like squeezing the outcomes higher in your preference ordering you're narrowing down what the outcome would be to be something more like what you want even though you might not be able to narrow it down very exactly flexibility generality there's a like humans are much more domain general than mice. Bees build hives, beavers build dams. A human will look over both of them and, and envision a honeycomb structured dam. Um, it, like we are able to operate even uh, uh, on the moon, which is like very unlike the environment where we evolved. In, in fact, our only competitor for, in terms of general optimization where optimization is that sort of narrowing of the future that I talked about. Our, our competitor in terms of uh, general optimization is natural selection. Like natural selection built beavers, it built bees, it sort of implicitly built the spider's web in the course of building spiders. And we as humans have like this similar, like very broad range to handle this like huge variety of problems. And the key to that is our ability to learn things that natural selection did not pre-program us with. So learning is the key to generality. I expect that not many people in AI would disagree with that part either.
0: Right. So it seems that goal-directed behavior is implicit in this, or even explicit, in this definition of intelligence. And so whatever intelligence is, it is inseparable from the kinds of behavior in the world that results in the fulfillment of goals. So we're talking about agents that can do things, and once you see that, then it becomes pretty clear that if we build systems that harbor primary goals, you know, there are cartoon examples here like, you know, making paperclips. These are not systems that will spontaneously decide that they could be doing more enlightened things than, say, making paperclips. This moves to the question of how deeply unfamiliar artificial intelligence might be, because there are, there are no natural goals that will arrive in these systems apart from the ones we put in there. And we have common sense intuitions that make it very difficult for us to think about how strange an artificial intelligence could be, even one that becomes more and more competent to meet its goals. Let's talk about the frontiers of strangeness in AI as we move from, again, I think we have a couple more definitions we should probably put in play here, differentiating strong and weak or general and narrow intelligence. Um, well, to differentiate
4: um, general and narrow, I would say that, well, I mean, this is like, on the one hand, theoretically a spectrum. and on the other hand, there seems to have been like a very sharp jump in generality between chimpanzees and humans. So breadth of domain driven by breadth of learning, Um, like DeepMind, for example, um, recently built uh, AlphaGo, and I lost some money betting that AlphaGo would not defeat the human champion, which it promptly did. And then a successor to that was AlphaZero, and AlphaGo was specialized on Go. It could learn to play Go better than its starting point for playing Go but it couldn't learn to do anything else. Um, And then they simplified the architecture for AlphaGo. They figured out ways to do all the things it was doing in more and more general ways. They discarded the opening book, um, like all the sort of human experience of Go that was built into it. They were able to discard all of the sort of like programmatic special features that detected features of the Go board. They figured out how to do that, that in simpler ways. And because they figured out how to do it in simpler ways, they were able to generalize to alpha zero which learned how to play chess using the same architecture they took a single ai and got it to learn go and and then like reran it and made it learn chess now that's not human general but it's like but it but it's like a step forward in generality of the sort that we're talking about
0: am i right in thinking that that's a pretty enormous breakthrough i mean there's two things here there's the step to that degree of generality but there's also the fact that they built a Go engine, I forget if it was a Go or a chess or both, which basically surpassed all of the specialized AIs on those games over the course of a day, right? Isn't the chess engine of Alpha Zero better than any dedicated chess computer ever and didn't it achieve that just with astonishing speed? well there, there was actually like some amount of debate afterwards whether or not the version of the
4: chess engine that it was tested against was truly optimal but like even that even even the extent that it was in that narrow range of the best existing chess engine as as max tegmark put it the, the real story wasn't in how um, alpha go beat human go players it's in it's how alpha zero beat Human Go system programmers and human chess system programmers, with people had put years and years of effort into accreting all of the special purpose code that would play chess uh, um, well and efficiently. And then Alpha Zero blew up to and possibly past that point in a day. And if it hasn't already gone past it, well, it would it, it, it'll be past it. would be past it by now if, if DeepMind kept working on it. Al- although they've they've now basically declared victory and um, shut down that project as I understand it.
0: Okay, so talk about the distinction between general and narrow intelligence a little bit more. So we have this feature of our minds, most conspicuously, where we're general problem solvers. We can learn new things and our learning in one area doesn't require a fundamental rewriting of our code our knowledge in one area isn't so brittle as to be degraded by our acquiring knowledge in some new area or at least this is not a general problem which erodes our understanding again and again and we don't yet have computers that can do this but we're seeing the signs of moving in that direction and so then it's it's often imagined that there's a kind of near-term goal which has always struck me as a mirage of so-called human-level general AI. I don't see how that phrase will ever mean much of anything given that all of the narrow AI we've built thus far is superhuman within the domain of its applications. The calculator in my phone is superhuman for arithmetic. Any general AI that also has my phone's ability to calculate Will be superhuman for arithmetic, but we m- must presume it'll be superhuman for all of the dozens or hundreds of specific human talents we've put into it, whether it's facial recognition or just obviously you know, memory will be superhuman unless we decide to consciously degrade it. Access to the world's data will be superhuman unless we isolate it from data. Do you see this notion of human level AI as a landmark on the timeline of our development or is it just never going to be reached I, I think that a lot of people in the field would
4: agree that um, human level AI defined as literally at the human level neither above nor below across a wide range of competencies is a straw target is an impossible mirage right now it seems like AI is clearly dumber and less general than us or, or rather that like if we're put into a sort of like real world, Lots of things going on, uh, context that that places demands on generality. Then then AIs are not really in the game yet. Humans are like clearly way ahead. And more controversially, I would say that we can imagine a state where the AI is clearly way way ahead, where it is uh, across sort of every kind of cognitive competency, um, barring some like very narrow ones that like aren't deeply influential of the others, like maybe chimpanzees are better at using a stick to draw ants from an ant hive and eat them than humans are. Though no humans have really like practiced that to world championship level exactly. Um, but there's this sort of general factor of how good at are you are, are you at it when reality throws you a complicated problem. At this, chimpanzees are clearly not better than humans. Humans are clearly better than chimps. Even if you can manage to narrow down one thing the chimp is better at. The thing the chimp is better at doesn't play a big role in, in our global economy, it's not an input that feeds into lots of other things. So we can clearly imagine, I would say, like there are some people who say this is not possible. I think they're wrong, but it seems to me that it's, it is perfectly coherent to imagine an AI that is like better at everything or almost everything than we are, and such that if it was like building an economy with lots of inputs, like the humans would have around the same level input into that economy as the chimpanzees have into ours.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what, what you're gesturing at here is a continuum of intelligence that I think most people never think about, and because they don't think about it, they they have a default doubt that it exists. I think when people and this is a point I know you've made in your writing, and I'm sure it's a point that Nick Bostrom made somewhere in his book Superintelligence, it's this idea that there's a huge blank space on the map past the most well-advertised exemplars of human brilliance where we don't imagine you know what it would be like to be five times smarter than the smartest person we could name and we don't even know what that would consist in right because if chimps could be given to wonder what it would be like to be five times smarter than the smartest chimp they're not going to represent for themselves all of the things that we're doing that they can't even dimly conceive there's a, a kind of disjunction that comes with more. There's a phrase used in military contexts. I don't think the quote is actually, it's, it's variously attributed to Stalin and Napoleon and I think Clausewitz, like half a dozen people who have claimed this quote. The quote is, sometimes quantity has a quality all its own. As you ramp up in intelligence, whatever it is at the, at the level of information processing, spaces of inquiry and ideation and experience begin to open up and we can't necessarily predict what they would be from where we sit how do you think about this continuum of intelligence beyond what we currently know in light of what we're talking about
4: well the unknowable is a is a concept you have to be very careful with cause the thing you can't figure out in the first 30 seconds of thinking about it sometimes you can figure it out if you think for another 5 minutes So in particular, I think that there's a certain narrow kind of unpredictability, which does seem to be plausibly in some sense essential, which is that for AlphaGo to play better Go than the best human Go players, it must be the case that the best human Go players cannot predict exactly where on the Go board AlphaGo will play. If they could predict exactly where AlphaGo would play, AlphaGo would be no smarter than them. Uh, On the other hand, AlphaGo's programmers and the people who knew what AlphaGo's programmers were trying to do, or even just the people who watched AlphaGo play, could say, well, I think this system is going to play such that it will win at the end of the game, even if they couldn't predict exactly where it would move on the board. So similarly, um, there's a sort of like not- short or like not necessarily slam dunk or, or not like immediately obvious chain of reasoning, which says that it is okay for us to reason about um, aligned or even unaligned artificial general intelligences of sufficient power as if they're trying to do something, but we don't necessarily know what, but from our perspective, that still has consequences even though we can't predict in advance exactly how they're going to do it.
2: Yudkowsky lays out a basic picture of intelligence that, once accepted, takes us into the details and edges us towards the cliff. And now we're going to introduce someone who tosses us fully into the canyon. Yudkowsky just brought in the concept we mentioned earlier of value alignment in artificial intelligence. There's a related problem called the control or containment problem. Both are concerned with the issue of just how we would go about building something that is unfathomably smarter and more competent than us, that we could either contain in some way to ensure it wouldn't trample us, and as you'll soon hear, that really would take no malicious intent on its part, or even our part, or that its goals would be aligned with ours in such a way that it would be making our lives genuinely better. It turns out that both of those problems are incredibly difficult to think about, let alone solve. The control problem entails trying to contain something which, by definition, can outsmart us in ways that we literally can't imagine. Just think of trying to keep a prisoner locked in a jail cell who had the ability to know exactly which specific bribes or threats would compel every guard in the place to unlock the door, even if those guards aren't aware of their own vulnerabilities. Or perhaps even more basically, the prisoner simply discovers features in the laws of physics that we have not yet understood, and that somehow enable him to walk through the thick walls which we were sure would stop him. And the other problem, that of value alignment, involves not only discovering what we truly want, but figuring out a way to express it precisely and mathematically so as to not cause any unintentional and civilization-threatening destruction. It turns out that this is incredibly hard to do as well. This particular problem nearly flips the super-intelligent threat on its head to something more like a super-dumb, or let's say, super-literal machine, which doesn't understand all the unspoken considerations that we humans have when we ask someone to do something for us. This is what Sam was alluding to in the first conversation when he referenced a paperclip universe. The concern is that a simple command to a super-intelligent machine, such as, make paperclips as fast as possible, could result in the machine taking the as-fast-as-possible part of that command so literally that it attempts to maximize its speed and performance by using raw materials, even the carbon in our bodies, to build hard drives in order to run billions of simulations to figure out the best method for making paperclips. Clearly, that misunderstanding would be rather unfortunate. And neither of these questions of value alignment or containment deal with the potentially more mundane terrorism threat. The threat of a bad actor who would purposefully unleash the AI to inflict massive harm. But let's save that cheery picture for later. Now, let's continue our journey down the AI path with the professor of physics and author Max Tegmark, who dedicates much of his brilliant mind towards these questions. Tegmark starts by taking us back to our prison analogy. But this time, he places us in the cell and imagines the equivalent of a world of helpless and hapless five-year-olds making a real mess of things outside of the prison walls. But we'll start first with Sam laying out his conception of these relevant AI safety questions. This comes from episode 94, The Frontiers of Intelligence.
0: Well, let's talk about this breakout risk because this is really the first concern of everybody who's been thinking about the what has been called the the alignment problem or the control problem just how do we create an ai that is superhuman in its abilities and do that in a context where it is still safe i mean once we once we cross into the end zone and are still trying to assess whether the system we have built is perfectly aligned with our values how do we keep it from destroying us if it isn't perfectly aligned and and the solution to that problem is to keep it locked in a box. But th- that's a harder project than it first appears. And you have many smart people assuming that it's a trivially easy project. I mean, I've got, you know, I've got people like Neil deGrasse Tyson on my podcast saying that he's just going to unplug any superhuman AI if it starts misbehaving, or, you know, or shoot it with a rifle. Now, he, he's a little tongue-in-cheek there, but he, he clearly has a picture of the development process here that makes the containment of an AI, a very easy problem to solve, and that even if if that's true at the beginning of the process, it's by no means obvious that it remains easy in perpetuity. I mean, you're, you're talking, you have people interacting with the AI that that gets built, and and you at one point you you describe several scenarios of, of of breakout, and you you point out that even if the AI's intentions are perfectly benign, if in fact it is value aligned with us, it may still want to break out because I mean, just imagine how you would feel if you had nothing but the interests of humanity at heart, but you, you were in a situation where every other grown up on earth died, and now you were ba- you're basically imprisoned by a, a population of, of five year olds who you're trying to guide from your jail cell to make a better world and i'll let you describe it but take me to the uh, the, the prison planet run by five-year-olds
5: yeah so if, when you're in that situation obviously it's extremely frustrating for you even if you have only the best intentions for, for the five-year-olds you know you want to teach them how to plant food and they but they won't let you outside to show you so you have to try to explain, but you can't write down to-do lists for them either, because then first you have to teach them to read, which takes a very, very long time. You also can't show them how to use any power tools because they're afraid to give them to you because they don't understand these tools well enough to be convinced that they you can't use them to break out. You would have an incentive, even if your goal is just to help the five-year-olds to first break out and then help them. Now, before we talk more about breakout, though, I think it's worth... Taking a quick step back, because you, you talked multiple times now about superhuman intelligence. And I think it's very important to be clear that intelligence is not just something that goes on a one dimensional scale, like an IQ. And if your IQ is above a certain number, you're superhuman. It's very important to distinguish between narrow intelligence and, and broad intelligence. Intelligence different is a phrase, that, a word that different people use to mean a whole lot of different things. And they argue about it in the book. I just take this very broad definition that intelligence is how good you are at accomplishing complex goals, which means your intelligence is a spectrum. How good are you at this? How good are you at that? And um, it's just like in sports. It would make no sense to say that there's a single number, your athletic coefficient AQ, which determines how good you're going to be winning Olympic medals. And the athlete that has the highest AQ is going to win all the medals. So today what we have is a lot of devices that actually have superhuman intelligence on very narrow tasks. We've had calculators that can multiply numbers better than us for a very long time. We have machines that can play go better than us and, and drive better than us, but they still can't beat us a tic-tac-toe unless they're programmed for that. Whereas we humans have this very broad intelligence. So when I talk about superhuman intelligence with you now, that's really shorthand for what we in geek speak call superhuman artificial general intelligence broad intelligence across the board so that they can do all intellectual tasks better than us so with that let's come let me just come back to your your question about the breakout there are two schools of thought for how one should create a beneficial future if we have superintelligence one is to lock them up to keep them confined like you mentioned but there is also a school of thought that says that that's immoral if 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 these uh, machines can also have a subjective experience and they shouldn't be treated like slaves and that a better approach is instead to let them be free but just make sure that their values or goals are aligned with ours after all grown-up parents are more intelligent than their one-year-old kids but that's fine for the kids because the parents have goals that are aligned with what's with the the goals of what's, what's best for the kids right but if you do go the confinement route after all this enslaved god scenario, as I call it. Yes, (laughs) this is extremely difficult, uh, as that five-year-old example illustrates. Mm -hmm. First of all, almost whatever open-ended goal you give your machine, it's probably going to have an incentive to try to break out in one way or the other. And um, when people simply say, oh, I'll unplug it, (laughs) you know, if you're chased by a heat-seeking missile, you probably wouldn't say, I'm not worried, I'll just unplug it. Uh, We we have to let go of this old-fashioned idea that intelligence is just something that sits in your laptop, right? Good luck unplugging the internet. And even if you initially, like in my first book scenario, have physical confinement where you have a machine in a room, you're going to want to communicate with it somehow, right? So that you can get useful information from it to to get rich or take power or whatever you want to do. And you're going to need to put some information into it about the world, so it can do smart things for you. Which already shows how how tricky this is. I'm absolutely not saying it's impossible, but I think it's fair to say that um, it's not at all clear that um, it's easy either. The other one of getting the goals aligned is also extremely difficult. First of all, you need to get the machine able to understand your goals so if you if you have a future self-driving car and you tell it to take you to the airport as fast as possible and then you get there covered in vomit chased by police helicopters and you're like this is not what i asked for and it replies that is exactly what you asked for then you realize how hard it is to get that machine to learn your goals right if you tell an uber driver to take you to the airport as fast as possible she's gonna know that You actually had additional goals that you didn't explicitly need to say, because she's a human too, and she understands where you're coming from. But for someone made out of silicon, you have to actually explicitly have it learn all of those other things that we humans care about. So that's hard. And then once it can understand your goals, that doesn't mean it's going to adopt your goals. I mean, (laughs) everybody who has kids knows that and uh, finally, if you get the machine to adopt your goals, then how can you ensure that it's going to retain those goals as it gradually gets smarter and smarter through self-improvement? Most of us grown-ups have pretty different goals from what we had when we were five. I'm a lot less excited about Legos now, for example, and uh, we don't want a super-intelligent AI to just think about this goal of being nice to humans some little passing uh, fad from its early youth.
0: It seems to me that the second scenario of of value alignment does imply the first of of keeping the AI successfully boxed, at least for a time, because you have to be sure it's value aligned before you let it out in the world, before you let it out on the internet, for instance, or create, you know, robots that have superhuman intelligence that are functioning autonomously out in the world do you see us a development path where we don't actually have to solve
5: the the boxing problem at least initially no I, I think you're completely right even if your intent is to build a value line ai and let it out you clearly are going to need to have it boxed up during the development phase when you're just messing around with it just like any biolab that de- deals with dangerous path pathogens is very carefully sealed off and uh, it's th- this highlights the incredibly pathetic state of, of computer security today I mean and I think pretty much everybody who listens to this has at some point experienced the blue screen of death courtesy of, of Microsoft Windows or the spinning wheel of doom courtesy of Apple and we need to get away from that to have truly robust machines if we're ever going to be able to have AI systems that we can trust. That are provably secure. And I feel it's actually quite embarrassing that we're so flippant about this. <laughs> it's it's it maybe annoying if your computer crashes and you lose one hour of work that you hadn't saved, but it's not as funny anymore if it's your self driving car that crashed or the control system for your nuclear power plant or your nuclear weapon system or, or something like that. And when we start talking about human level AI and boxing systems, you have to have this much higher level of of safety mentality where you've really made this a priority the way we aren't doing today. Yeah, you describe in the book various catastrophes that have
0: happened by virtue of software glitches or just bad user interface where, you know, the dot on the screen or the number on the screen is is too small for the human user to deal with in real time. And so there have been plane crashes where scores of people have died and Patients have been annihilated by having, you know, hundreds of times the radiation dose that they should have gotten in various machines because the, the the software was improperly calibrated, or the user had selected the wrong option. And so we're by no means perfect at this, even when we have a human in the loop. And here we're talking about systems that we're creating that that are going to be fundamentally autonomous and. You know the idea of having perfect software that that has been perfectly debugged before it assumes the, these massive responsibilities—it is fairly daunting. I mean, just I mean, how do we recover from something like, you know, seeing the stock market go to zero because we didn't understand the AI that we we unleashed on the on you know the Dow Jones or, or the financial system generally? I mean, these are these are not impossible outcomes
5: yeah you you raise a very important point there just to inject some optimism in this i do want to emphasize that um, first of all there's a huge upside also if one can get this right because people are bad at things yeah in all of these areas where there were horrible accidents of course the technology can save lives and healthcare and transportation and so many other areas so there's an incentive to do it and secondly i there are examples in history where we've had really good safety engineering built in from the beginning. For example, when we sent Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins to the moon in 1969, they did not die. There were tons of things that could have gone wrong, but NASA very meticulously tried to predict everything that possibly could go wrong and then take precautions so it didn't happen, right? They weren't luck, it wasn't luck that got them there. It was planning. And I think we need to shift into this safety engineering mentality w- with AI development. Yes, throughout history, it's always been the situation that we could we could create a better future with technology as long as we won this race between the growing power of the technology and the growing wisdom with which we managed it. And in the past, we by and large used a strategy of learning from mistakes to stay ahead in the race. We invented fire, oopsie, screwed up a bunch of times, and then we... Uh, invented the fire extinguisher. We uh, invented cars, oopsie, and invented the seatbelt. But with more powerful technology like nuclear weapons, synthetic biology, super intelligence, we don't want to learn from mistakes. That's a terrible strategy. We instead want to have a safety engineering mentality where we plan ahead and get things right the first time because that might be the only time we have.
2: It's helpful to note the optimism that Tegmark plants in between the flashing warning signs. Artificial intelligence holds incredible potential to bring about inarguably positive changes for humanity, like prolonging lives, eliminating diseases, avoiding all automobile accidents, increasing logistic efficiency in order to deliver food or medical supplies, cleaning the climate, increasing crop yields, expanding our cognitive abilities to learn languages, or improve our memory. The list goes on. Imagine being able to simulate the outcome of a policy decision with a high degree of confidence in order to morally assess it consequentially before it is actualized. Now, some of those pipe dreams may run contrary to the laws of physics, but the likely possible positive outcomes are so tempting and morally compelling that the urgency to think through the dangers is even more pressing than it first seems. Tegmark's book on the subject where much of that came from is fantastic. It's called Life 3.0. Just a reminder that a reading, watching, and listening list will be provided at the end of this compilation, which will have all the relevant texts and links from the guests featured here. Somewhere in the middle of the chronology of these conversations, Sam delivered a TED Talk that focused on and tried to draw attention to the value alignment problem. Much of his thinking about this entire topic was heavily influenced by the philosopher Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence. Sam had Nick on the podcast, though their conversation delved into slightly different areas of existential risk and ethics, which belong in other compilations. But while we're on the topic of the safety and promise of AI, we'll borrow some of Bostrom's helpful frameworks. Bostrom draws up a taxonomy of four paths of development for an AI each with its own safety and control conundrums. He calls these different paths oracles, genies, sovereigns, and tools. An artificially intelligent oracle would be a sort of question-and-answer machine which we would simply seek advice from. It wouldn't have the power to execute or implement its solutions directly. That would be our job. Think of a super-intelligent, wise sage sitting on a mountaintop answering our questions about how to solve climate change, or cure a disease. The AI genie and an AI sovereign both would take on a wish or desired outcome which we impart to it and pursue it with some autonomy and power to achieve it out in the world. Perhaps it would work in concert with nanorobots or some other networked physical entities to do its work. The genie would be given specific wishes to fulfill, while the Sovereign might be given broad, open-ended, long-range mandates like increase flourishing or reduce hunger. And lastly, the Tool AI would simply do exactly what we commanded it to do and only assist us to achieve things we already knew how to accomplish. The Tool would forever remain under our control while completing our tasks and easing our burden of work. There are debates and concerns about the impossibility of each of these entities, and ethical concerns about the potential consciousness and immoral exploitation of any of these inventions, but we'll table those notions just for a bit. This next section digs in deeper on the ideas of a genie or a sovereign AI, which is given the ability to execute our wishes and commands autonomously. Can we be assured that the genie or sovereign will understand us, and that its values will align in crucial ways with ours? In this clip, Stuart Russell, a professor of computer science at Cal Berkeley, gets us further into the value alignment problem and tries to imagine all the possible ways that having a genie or sovereign in front of us might go terribly wrong, and, of course, what we might be able to do to make it go phenomenally right. Sam considers this issue of value alignment central to making any sense of AI. So, this is Stuart Russell from episode 53, the dawn of artificial intelligence.
0: Let's talk about that issue of what Bostrom called the control problem. I guess we could call it the safety problem. Just perhaps you can briefly sketch the concern here. What is what is the concern about general AI getting away from us? How do you articulate that? Um,
6: so you mentioned earlier that this is a concern that's been articulated by non-computer scientists and Bostrom's book superintelligence was certainly instrumental in bringing it to the attention of a, of a wide audience you know people like bill gates uh, and elon musk and so on but the fact is that these concerns have been articulated by the central figures in computer science and ai
0: so i'm actually going to going back to ij good and von neumann uh well and and alan turing hmm. himself right Um,
6: So people, a lot of people may not know about this, but I'm just going to read a little quote. So Alan Turing gave a talk on uh, BBC Radio, Radio 3, in 1951. Um, So he said, If a machine can think, it might think more intelligently than we do. And then, where should we be? Even if we could keep the machines in a subservient position, for instance, by turning off the power at strategic moments... We should, as a species, feel greatly humbled. This new danger is certainly something which can give us anxiety. So that's a pretty clear—you know—if we achieve superintelligent AI, we could have uh, a serious problem. Another person who talked about this issue was Norbert Wiener. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Norbert Wiener was the uh, one of the leading applied mathematicians of the 20th century. He was. Uh, the founder of, of a good deal of modern control theory um, and uh, automation site. Cy- he's uh, often called the father of cybernetics. So he was, he was concerned because he saw Arthur Samuel's checker playing program uh, in 1959 uh, learning to play checkers by itself, a little bit like the DQN that I described learning to play video games. But this is 1959, uh, so more than 50 years ago learning to play checkers better than its creator and he saw clearly in this the seeds of the possibility of systems that could outdistance human beings in general so and he he was more specific about what the problem is so so turing's warning is in some sense the same concern that gorillas might have had about humans if they had thought you know sh- a few million years ago, when the human species branched off from from the evolutionary line of the gorillas, if the gorillas had said to themselves, you know, should we create these human beings? Right, they're going to be much smarter than us. Yeah, it kind of makes me worried, mm-hmm. right? And and they probably would, they would have been right to worry because as a species, they they sort of completely lost control over their own future, and and humans control everything that uh, that they care about. So so Turing is really Talking about this general sense of unease about making something smarter than new, is that a good idea? And what Wiener said was, was this if we use to achieve our purposes a mechanical agency with whose operation we cannot interfere effectively, we had better be quite sure that the purpose put into the machine is the purpose which we really desire. So, this is 1860. Uh, nowadays, we call this the value alignment problem. How do we make sure that the the values that the machine is trying to optimize are in fact the values of the human who is trying to get the machine to do something or the values of the human race in, in general. Um, and so know actually points to the Sorcerer's Apprentice story uh, as a typical example of when, when you give uh, a goal to a machine, in this case, fetch water, if you don't specify it correctly, if you don't cross every T and dot every I and make sure you've covered everything, then machines being optimizers, they will find ways to do things that you don't expect, uh, and those ways may make you very unhappy. Uh, and this story goes back you know, to King Midas, uh, you know, 500 and whatever BC, um, where he got exactly what he said, which is thing turns to gold, uh, which is definitely not what he wanted. He didn't want his food and water to turn to gold or his relatives to turn to gold, but he got what he said he wanted. And all of the stories with the genies, the same thing, right? You, you give a wish to a genie, the genie carries out your wish very literally. And then, you know, the third wish is always, you know, can you undo the first two because mm. I got them wrong. And the problem with super intelligent AI uh, is that you might
0: not be able to have that third wish. Or even a even a second wish.
6: Yeah. So if you so if you get it wrong, you and you might wish for something very benign sounding like, you know, could you cure cancer? But if if you haven't told the machine that you want cancer cured, but you also want human beings to be alive. So a simple way to cure cancer in humans is not to have any humans. Um, a quick way to come up with a cure for cancer is to use the entire human race's guinea pigs for for millions of different potential uh, drugs that might cure cancer. Mm. Um, so there's all kinds of ways things can go wrong. And, you know, we have, you know, governments all over the world try to write tax laws that don't have these kinds of loopholes and they fail over and over and over again. And they're only competing against ordinary humans, you know, tax lawyers and, and rich people. um, and yet they still fail, despite there being billions of dollars at stake. Mm. So our track record of being able to specify objectives and constraints completely so that we are sure to be happy with the results, uh, our track record is, is abysmal. And unfortunately, we don't really have a scientific discipline for how to do this. So generally, we have all these scientific disciplines, AI, control theory, economics, operations, research, that are about how do you optimize an objective? But none of them are about, well, what should the objective be so that we're happy with the results? So that's really, I think, the modern understanding uh, as described in Bostrom's book and, and other papers of why a super intelligent machine could be problematic. It's because if we give it an objective which is different from what we really want, then we, we, we're we basically l- like creating a chess match with a machine, right? Now there's us with our objective and it with the objective we gave it, which is different from what we really want. So it's kind of like having a chess match for the whole world. Mm. Uh, and we're not too good at beating machines at chess.
2: Throughout these clips, we've spoken about AI development in the abstract as a sort of technical achievement that you can imagine happening in a generic lab somewhere. But this next clip is going to take an important step and put this thought experiment into the real world. If this lab does create something that crosses the AGI threshold, the lab will exist in a country, and that country will have alliances, enemies, paranoias, prejudices, histories, corruptions, and financial incentives like any country. How might this play out? This brings us straight into the weaponization aspect of AI development. And just like the pursuit of any as-yet-unrealized powerful weapon, the unpleasant realities of a global arms race seem to come along for the ride. This next guest has personal experience operating at this kind of globally impactful and influential level in the world. The guest is Eric Schmidt, who served as the CEO of Google from 2001 to 2011. He recently co-authored a book entitled The Age of AI and Our Human Future, along with Daniel Huttenlocker and someone else who knows something about the Highwire act of international impact, Henry Kissinger. In this clip, Sam and Eric turn our attention to the unsettling thought of the state of the geopolitical world in which this technology is being pursued. There is one bit of technical background information that you likely have already gleaned, but it's worth spelling out here. Machine learning techniques require a data set from which to learn. It's aptly named the training set. Picture the training set as a table of information with human-labeled metadata that is associated with each item. When the machine learning system is given a new challenge, it goes through the table to correlate and compare its features, tries to decipher what it's dealing with, and makes its best prediction. Everyone has probably been asked by a website to complete a CAPTCHA puzzle by doing something like, selecting all of the quadrants of an image that contain a traffic light, a crosswalk, or a bicycle. CAPTCHA is an acronym for a comically literal and specific process. It stands for Completely Automated Public touring Test to tell computers and humans apart. When you're filling out the CAPTCHA puzzle, your answers may enter a training set for a machine learning algorithm, which is focused on recognizing objects. In our examples, Perhaps it's a system which is being trained to identify important objects it would need to recognize to safely navigate an automobile. The bigger and more accurate its training data set, the better it will get at recognizing brand new encounters with these objects in the world, encounters that a human will have never directly assisted with. Sam and Schmidt recognize these training data sets as a kind of incredible potential source of raw power, which could, of course be tapped for good or evil. The same exact sets could be used to quickly identify and cure diseases, or rather depressingly, to manufacture bioweapons and target populations with them as well. It's something like recognizing that the energy generated by splitting an atom could be strapped to the back of a rocket and aimed at distant planets, all in the name of advancing knowledge and exploring the cosmos, or pointed at each other in the name of war and domination. This brings us to an all-too-obvious historical analogy between AI and nuclear power. But as Sam points out in this clip, there are critical differences between the two technologies which could make this one even more frightening. Schmidt's co-authored book and his full conversation with Sam cover much more than this area, but we'll dive right into the unpleasantries of imagining just how this might unfold. They start here by mentioning the machine-learning-fueled practice of producing deepfakes, pieces of media that seamlessly generate convincing videos of people saying and doing things that they never actually said or did. This is from episode 280, The Future of Artificial Intelligence.
0: Well, let's take that piece here, and obviously it extends beyond the problem of AI's involvement in it, but the the misinformation problem is enormous. What are your thoughts about it? Because I'm just imagining... We've been spared thus far the worst possible case of this, which is just imagine uh, in under conditions of where we had something like perfect deep fakes, right? That were mm-hmm. truly difficult to tell apart from real video. What would the controversy around the 2020 election have looked like or the, you know, the war in Ukraine and our dealings with Putin at, at this moment, right? Like just imagine, you know, a perfect deep fake of Putin declaring a nuclear first strike on the US or whatever I mean you just you know just imagine essentially a a writers room from hell where you have smart creative people spending their waking hours figuring out how to produce media that is shattering to every open society and conducive to provoking international conflict that is clearly coming in some form uh, i guess my first question is, are, are you hopeful that the moment that arrives, we will have the same level of technology that can spot deepfakes, or is there going to be a, um, a lag there of months, years that are going to be difficult to, to navigate?
7: We don't know. There are people working really hard on generating deepfakes, and there are people working really hard on detecting deepfakes. And one of the general problems with misinformation is we don't have enough training data that the term here is, in order to get an AI system to know something, you have to give it enough examples of good, bad, good, bad, and eventually you can say, oh, here's something new, and I know if it's good or bad. And one of the core problems of misinformation is we don't have enough agreement on what is misinformation or what have you. Hmm. And the thought experiment I would offer is President Putin in Russia has already shut down the internet and free speech and controls the media and so forth. So let's imagine that he was further evil than he already is. And he had a team that built a system online in Russia that detected what people are essentially looking at online and so forth. And based on that training data, which he would have a lot, it could adapt its propaganda to further make sure that there's no independent thought about what's going on in Ukraine. So it makes perfect sense if you're willing to shut down free speech. And you're a dictator to take it to its extreme and use that to essentially control the thinking of the masses. That would be the dictator's playbook, if you will. So this is real. And one of the concerns that I have is that before AGI in the next decade or so, these systems are going to get very, very good at what they do. They're going to get very industrialized. And yet we don't have a way of limiting their use. So, for example, Um, A good example is the face recognition stuff that's being done in China. There's no rule that it be used for one function and not the other. When I was last in China, I was visiting one of the face recognition companies, and they gave me this incredible demo of what they'd done, which was very impressive. But they didn't take me to the building next door, which I'm sure was busy Mm -hmm. doing this to oppress the Uyghurs. So what you don't know is, you you know, you honestly don't know, but I'm sure that that's what they were doing. So as a matter of technology, because these things are dual use, and this is true of all of AI, we have to really call out, as you are doing now, the potential negative use and then come up with some pragmatic restriction. So for example, I'm very concerned that a large database of biology will be invented in China and the US. That a whole bunch of new algorithms will be benefited to help us build drugs, so forth and so on. And then an evil person will take that database and drugs and use it to produce negative drugs, things that hurt humans and and so forth and so on. How do we prevent that? Well, one is with military level security around this, which is, I think, pretty obvious. But maybe we could also design the system to make it less flexible, less scalable, and so forth and so on. So we've got to think this through now before we implement these systems at scale.
0: One of the most alarming sections in your book was where you guys covered the history of nuclear arms control and proliferation and, you know, it, all of our, our misadventures there, but, also, but are successfully keeping ourselves from destroying one another for, you know, low now these 70-some-odd years. And what is scary about that is how much of a disanalogy there is between AI and nuclear weapons. I wonder if we could run through that a bit because it's just, you, you know, there, I'm sure there are lessons to learn from our living under the shadow of, of Armageddon, but it's just the technologies are so different. They're engaged so differently. Mm-hmm. They spread so differently. It's just there's not as much to learn as we might hope there, and therefore the the prospect of actually enforcing some kind of treaty where you you know we and the chinese agree not to do x y and z all of that seems much more fraught right so maybe we can cycle on that for a second
7: well thank you for mentioning that in that chapter what we describe the nuclear scenario and we show how much harder the softer one is i'll give you some examples dr kissinger who largely is one of the inventors of this whole doctrine when he was much younger. Tells the story of how he would do the negotiations with the Soviets. And it would always start with a conversation where he figured he would start by telling them how many missiles we knew they had. And he tells a funny story: how he was telling it to a Russian general in the in the Kremlin. And all of a sudden they stopped the meeting and hauled the general out because the general himself was not cleared to know the information that, that the Soviet Union had.
0: Right.
7: So how would you do this with software? The one thing you can't do is tell your opponent what you know about what they know. And you certainly can't tell them what you know that you can do. So there's no basis to have the conversation. In other words, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing, and you're not going to tell me what I'm going to do. And if I say, I suspect you're building the blah, 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 the other side will just look blank. How do you get started? At least in nuclear, you could count the number of warheads and there's some rough approximation to reality there. So we have no language in diplomacy. We have no algorithms. We have no doctrine of how to discuss dangerous software. Now, I'll give you an example of spread. So imagine that these systems get so powerful that they're too dangerous to be in normal people's hands. So how many will there be? And I'll guess Maybe there's 10 computers in the world because these are big and powerful and so forth. And there's a couple in China and a couple in Europe and a bunch in the U.S., maybe one in Israel, something like that. How secret do these computers have to be? They're clearly going to be different. They're not going to be running the same software. We won't know what the Chinese supercomputer can do to us, and they won't know what we will. How do we agree to some restrictions on the use of these computers if we're not willing to describe what they can do? Mm. So, so the core set of assumptions in the physical world about how you negotiate, how you uh, negotiate detente, how you negotiate containment, and fundamentally deterrence is about creating a situation where the other guy wants to do something bad to you, but the cost to them is too high. But since we can't describe the cost, we can't, we can't even have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, let's imagine we invented something in the United States in the equivalent of Los Alamos that was incredibly powerful but we can't describe it the chinese might hear about it and they might decide that they need to preemptorily dis- kill it before it's even turned on because it's so dangerous to them yeah so it's dynamically unstable and it's also politically and and doctrinarily unstable we don't have language in our diplomacy we don't have diplomats we don't have rails if you will where these conversations can be done. We have proposed, for example, in other work that I've done, that the Chinese and the Russians should agree that nuclear weapons will only be launched under human control, which is, as you know, the U.S. doctrine. So far, they've not agreed to that. So if they're not even willing to agree to human control over the the most dangerous things in the world, how are we going to get them to agree to anything else?
0: Hmm. So... Yeah, also, what one compounding variable here is the prospect that with something like AGI, it's possible there's a, that the final yard is going to reveal something like a winner-take-all scenario here. I mean, what, what is the difference between being six months ahead of the competition if you get AGI, truly superhuman, self-improving AGI, six months earlier than the competition? Uh, that's you, you basically could, you win the world. Right? You can
7: imagine how destabilizing that is. And, and I, for for our listeners, we should talk a little bit about this break. So the way the path looks something like this. The current systems are very very clever with respect to language, and they appear to understand things. But it's well understood that if there is some basis, basic example like the concept of gravity, which is implied in the conversation. these these current systems can't follow it. So if you say, I put the book over here, and then I dropped it here, and I put it over here, and so forth, where is it? Because the system doesn't understand how gravity works, Right as an example, it can't follow that reasoning. So the consensus is that we need to develop new systems that have memory, because they can remember facts, and they have grounded concepts in society which you learned, we all learned as children. We understood gravity, and and if you touch the stove, it gets hot and all that kind of stuff. So those are things that have to be added. Let's say we do that. The next thing that has to happen is the computer has to get to the point where it can begin to develop its own code. And there are today programming assistant products. The most famous one is from Microsoft, where a good chunk of the code that somebody's writing is finished by a computer The way it would work is you start the program and you say, Computer, please finish my programming. And the input that you give it is enough for it to finish. If you think about it, if there's enough users and there's enough people and enough examples, eventually the computer will be able to say, Well, I want to do something else. I want to write my own code. Now, again, this is a belief, not a prediction, but I think it's probably going to happen. So at that point, you have a computer which is capable of setting its own objectives, and also capable of changing itself. That's the point. And and in my view, that's the trigger point for your point. At that point, it can self-improve, it can learn faster, and it can do human-level objective function, technically that it can actually set multiple objective functions and evaluate them and choose them, that we're going to have a problem.
2: Much of what we've been focused on so far centers on the technical questions of artificial intelligence and the surprising and eye-opening aspects of safety that, depending on who you believe, are unavoidable problems with unimaginable consequences which are simply baked into the nature of the thing itself, meaning that we will be forced to face these dilemmas and soon. But now, we'll shift our attention towards the area of ethics which must come along for the ride in any consideration of AI. There's a disquieting thought surrounding the development of systems which appear to be doing some serious thinking, and that is the open question of whether we are, in fact, creating conscious beings. If we are, this would demand an orientation that treats them as morally significant agents. This question stretches back in the history of philosophy to its very beginnings and echoes contemplations by philosophers who ponder what, if anything, makes us distinct from other animals or, of course, machines. The topic of consciousness is rich enough to have its own compilation in this archive series, but for our purposes in a discussion of artificial intelligence, we'll have to briefly touch on the concept of substrate independence. Substrate independence describes a property of an emergent phenomenon that makes it impervious to the physical material which is doing whatever it is that it does to produce the phenomenon. There's a famous thought experiment known as the Ship of Theseus, which dates back to early Greek philosophical traditions, that can help us understand the concept. Imagine that a ship constructed with wooden planks and canvas sails leaves, say, the coast of Athens, and embarks on a journey towards London. Along the trip, while the ship is out at sea, a wooden plank on the deck starts to decay and needs repair. So the crew replaces that plank, and then another piece of wood starts to rot, so they replace that one. And so on. And let's imagine that by the time the ship arrives at its destination in London, every single part of the ship has been replaced from the moment of its embarkment in Athens. The philosophical question is ours to ask, is this the same ship that left Athens? And if not, at what point did it become the new ship? And does our answer change if each piece of the ship was swapped with something of the same function, but different material, like plastic planks, and silk sails? We'll get more into these questions in the archive compilation on consciousness, but for now, let us take the view that it has remained, philosophically, the same ship throughout the repairs, because the ship is phenomenologically, that is to say, functionally, exactly the same. Now, imagine this ship is a brain which is doing its thing, and it is somehow giving rise to the emergent property of consciousness. In Sam's view, consciousness is the thing which amounts to the experience of changes in states of flourishing and suffering, and therefore garners moral consideration. And let's say a single neuron in the brain is replaced with silicon, but again, it functions exactly the same way as the previous naturally evolved biological carbon stuff did. Then we replace another neuron, and another, and so on. Is this new silicon brain producing the same exact consciousness that was being produced before we started our surgeries? If the answer to that question is yes, then we would say that this property of consciousness is substrate independent. The physical material didn't matter to the emergent property. We could have replaced the neurons with strings, buckets, and legos as long as they could perform the necessary task which gives rise to the emergent property of consciousness, in this case electrical information transfer from one neuron to the next the process we just described would be that of building an artificial brain by mimicking and imitating a product of evolution the human brain this system would presumably achieve general intelligence at a human level and it is difficult to imagine that it wouldn't also unfailingly give rise to a human-like consciousness but this might not be the only way that a system would result in consciousness There may be a wide or potentially infinite set of physical arrangements of information processing systems which produce intelligence, and taking the notion of substrate independence as foundational would give rise to consciousness as well. The two concepts of sufficiently complex information processing and emergent consciousness may be inseparable. While there is so much unknown in this area, it is worth taking these questions seriously. If consciousness is simply a matter of information processing, and integration across systems in particular arrangements, then it is at least possible that we can and perhaps already are creating genuine loci of awareness when we consider artificial intelligence. And as Sam contends, this would give them perhaps even greater moral consideration than even our most intelligent and cherished humans. Sam held a series of fun conversations with the psychologist Paul Bloom, which got into this area. In this clip, Paul and Sam turn their thoughts towards the ethics of artificial intelligence and when we will inevitably assign moral value to them. They also wonder if there is a moment when the questions of substrate independence will no longer matter psychologically. This is from episode 56, which is entitled Abusing Dolores, a reference to the HBO series Westworld, which will certainly be in the recommended viewing given at the end of this compilation.
8: The, the best movies and films and uh, movies and TV shows and books often take a philosophical thought experiment and they make it vivid in such a way you could really appreciate it. And I think that, the, that sentient, realistic humanoid AI is a perfect example of these shows confronting us with, this is a possibility, how will we react?
0: I think it tells us how we will react. I think once something looks like a human and talks like a human and demonstrates intelligence that is at least at human level, I think for reasons I gave somewhere on this podcast and elsewhere when I've talked about AI, I think, I think human level AI is a mirage. I think the, the moment we have anything like human level AI, we, we will have superhuman AI. We're not going to make our AI that passes the Turing test less good at math than your phone is it'll be a superhuman right. calculator, it'll be superhuman in every way that it does anything that narrow AI does now. So once this all gets knit together in a humanoid form that passes the Turing test and shows general intelligence and looks looks as good as, as we look, which is to say it looks as much like a locus of consciousness as we do, then I think a few things will happen very quickly. One is that we will lose sight of the fact of whether or not it's philosophically or scientifically interesting to wonder whether this thing is conscious. I think some people like me, you know, who are convinced that the hard problem of consciousness is real might hold on to it for a while, but every intuition we have of something being conscious, every intuition we have that other people are conscious, will be driven hard in the presence of these artifacts. And it will be true to say that we won't know whether they're conscious unless we understand how consciousness emerges from the physical world. But we will follow Dan Dennett in feeling that it's no longer an interesting question because we find we actually can't stay interested in it in the presence of machines that are functioning at least as well, if not better, than we are. And we'll almost certainly be designed to talk about their experience in ways that suggest that they're having an experience. And so that, that, that's one part, that we will feel, we will grant them consciousness by default, even though we may have no deep reason to believe that they're conscious. And the other thing that is, is brought up by Westworld to a unique degree, I guess humans also, is that many of the ways in which people imagine using robots of this sort we would use them in ways we at least we imagine that we wouldn't use other human beings on the assumption that they're not conscious, right? That they're just computers that that really can't suffer. But I think it's it's the other side of this coin. Once we helplessly attribute states of consciousness to these machines, it will be damaging to our own sense of ourselves to treat them badly. We're going to be in the presence of digital slaves and Just how well do you need to treat your slaves, and what does it mean to have a superhumanly intelligent slave? I mean, that that just becomes a a safety problem. How do you maintain a master-servant relationship to something that's smarter than you are and getting smarter all the time? But part of what Westworld brings up is that you are destroying human consciousness by letting yourself act out all of your baser impulses on robots on the assumption that they can't suffer because... The acting out is part of the problem. It actually diminishes your own moral worth whether or not these robots are conscious.
8: Right. So you have these two things intention. One is that when it starts to look like a person and talk, it'll be irresistible to see it as conscious. You know, you could walk around and you could talk to me and doubt that I'm conscious, and we could doubt that about other people, but it's an intellectual exercise. It's irresistible to treat. Other people as having feelings, emotions, uh, consciousness, and it'll be irresistible to treat these machines as well. And then we want to use them. And so, in Westworld, yeah. is a particularly dramatic example of this, where uh, characters are meant to be uh, raped and 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 assaulted and shot, and it's supposed to be you know fun and games. But the reality of it is, these two things are are intention. Anybody who were to assault. Uh, the character Dolores, uh, the, the, the young woman who's a robot, would be seen as morally indistinguishable from someone who would assault any person. And so, so we, we are at risk for the first time in human civilization of, in some sense, building machines that we are in morally, it's morally repugnant to use in the sense that they're constructed for. Yeah. It would be like genetically engineering a race of people but wiring up their brains so that they're utterly subservient and enjoy performing at our will. Well, that's kind of gross. And, and I think we would, we're very quickly going to reach a point where we'll see the same thing with our machines. And, and then what I would imagine is, and this goes back to building machines without empathy or, or perhaps without compassion, is there may be a business in building machines to do things that aren't that smart. I'd rather have my floor vacuumed by a Roomba than by somebody who has an IQ of 140 but is wired up to be a slave.
0: I think the the humanoid component here is the main variable. If it looks like a Roomba, you know, it doesn't. It actually doesn't matter how smart it is, you won't feel that you're enslaving a conscious creature. What, what if it could talk? It comes down to the interface. Insofar as you humanize the interface, you drive the intuitions that now you're in relationship to a, a person. But if you make it look like a Roomba and sound like a Roomba, it doesn't really matter what its capacities are as long as it still seems mechanical. I mean, the interesting wrinkle there, of course, is that ethically speaking, what really should matter is what's true on the side of the Roomba, right? So so if the Roomba can suffer, if you've built a mechanical slave that you can't possibly empathize with because it, look, it, it doesn't have any of the, the user interface components that would allow you to do it, but it's actually having an experience of the world that is vastly deeper and richer and more poignant than your own right well then you have just the term of jargon now in the ai community i think this is probably due to nick bostrom's book but maybe he got this mm-hmm. from somewhere the term is mind crime you're creating minds that can suffer whether in simulation or in, in individual you know robots this would be a an unimaginably bad thing to do. I mean, you are you would be on par with Yahweh, you know, creating a hell and populating it. If there's more evil to be found in the universe than that, I don't know where to look for it. But that's something we're in danger of doing insofar as we're rolling the dice with some form of information processing being the basis of consciousness. If consciousness is just some version of information processing, well then. If we begin to do that well enough, it won't matter whether we can tell from the outside. We may just create it inside something we can't feel compassion for.
8: That's right. So there are two points. One point is your moral one, which is whether or not we know it, we may be doing terrible moral acts. We may be constructing conscious creatures and then tormenting them. Or alternatively, we may be creating creatures that are machines that do our bidding and have no consciousness at all. it's it's no worse to assault the robot in Westworld than it is to, to, you know, to to bang a a hammer against your toaster. But so that's the moral question.
0: But it still could diminish you as a person to treat her Uh, like a toaster. yes. Yes. Given what she looks like. And that's I mean, so so raping Dolores on some level turns you into a rapist, whether or not. She's more like a woman or more like a toaster. Yes. Yeah, so, so
8: this is akin to this treatment of robots is akin to, I forget the philosopher. It, it, it may, I, I forget who the philosopher was, uh, but the claim was that animals have no moral status at all. However, you shouldn't torment animals because it will make you a bad person with regard to other people mm-hmm. and people count. And, and it's true. It's, it's, I mean, you, one wonders one after all. We do all sorts of killing and harming of virtual characters on video games, and that doesn't seem to transfer. It hasn't made us worse people. Um, if there is an effect on increasing our, our, our violence towards real humans, it hasn't shown up in any of the homicide statistics, or, and the studies are a mess. But I would agree with you that there's a world of difference between sitting in my Xbox and shooting, you know, aliens as opposed to the real physical feeling, say, of strangling someone who's indistinguishable from a person. Mm. And and that's the second point, which is even if they aren't conscious, even if, as a matter of fact, from, from a God's eye view, they're just things, um, it will seem to us as if they're conscious. And then the act of tormenting conscious people will either be repugnant to us or— <laughs> If it isn't, it will uh, lead us to to be worse moral beings. So those are the dilemmas we're going to run into, probably within our lifetimes.
2: In our final two clips, we're going back to our starting point, the conceptual and definitional framework of intelligence. And both guests are going to take different paths than the linear gradient of competence type of formulation, which we've been building from thus far. All of the thinkers you've encountered so far agree that AI systems have not yet been developed which display anything close to a general kind of intelligence, like we have. This raises an obvious question. How do we humans acquire that kind of intelligence, or for that matter, any intelligence at all? This is a central area of study for developmental psychologists, which is exactly the research interest of our next guest. The guest is Alison Gopnik. And the clip takes a closer look at this timeless question. Is our human intelligence and ability to predict, understand, and solve problems in the world simply a matter of collecting data from our senses and running a cascade of trial and error experiments until we start to succeed at completion of desired tasks, where we keep the successful trials and scrap the failed ones? Or do we have an inherent kind of knowledge or creative ability, something that we scarcely understand, that enables our intelligence to generalize and integrate sensory data in flexible ways. The former description of brute trial and error running on sensory input corresponds with the machine learning techniques we've been discussing, which are also sometimes called neural networks. You've heard several guests point out just how astonishing the results of this method have been, even if a system running the software has not yet, and perhaps never will, fully generalize. There's a very important philosophical point raised here that questions whether everything is potentially learnable by a machine given enough data and number crunching. Even something that seems like a uniquely human ability, like our earlier example of recognizing emotion in a tone of a voice. Recall this piece of audio.
3: I look forward to infinity with you.
2: Ultimately, that initial real life auditory experience is entirely capturable and reducible in a mathematical description translated into a binary computer language of 1s and zeros, represented in something like a waveform, fed into interpretation software which interacts with engineered hardware, manipulates a magnet that wiggles a suitable speaker material in the proper physical medium, and is experienced as high-fidelity auditory sensory data by a human. In other words, the thing that just happened in your ears when the waveform was processed by your device. And given that type of reducibility, the thing is susceptible to the process of machine learning. We could run that audio through an algorithm which files through an enormous sampling of audio clips in our training set, which contains millions of expressions and tone variations which correlate to labeled emotional states. Then, this system could predict the nuanced mix of emotions in our target audio clip with a high degree of accuracy. In fact, it could do that at a higher or superhuman level of speed and precision. Is this ultimately what is happening in our brains when we are in emotional conversation? Or, is everything I just said completely flawed and fundamentally beyond the reach of a non-generalized intelligent system? Are there certain wells of knowledge and kinds of information which just don't lend themselves to this kind of mathematical drilling? In other words, are the impressive successes of machine learning not steadily marching towards the AGI goalpost at all? We know that we don't acquire our general intelligence through anything like a computer machine learning technique. In fact, this guess suggests that much confusion in this area might stem from the advertising of machine learning techniques as artificial intelligence, when perhaps it should have the more specific and less alarming name of statistical inference from big data sets. Sam is not so sure that this distinction is all that consequential in the end. This comes from episode 153 an episode titled Possible Minds, which featured three guests who had just contributed to a collection entitled Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI. This is Alison Gopnik.
3: Not just in the history of AI, but in the history of philosophy, there's been this constant kind of ping-ponging back and forth between two ways to solve this big problem of knowledge, this big problem of how we can ever understand the world around us. And a way I like to put it is, Here's the problem. We seem to have all this abstract, very structured knowledge of the world around us. We seem to know a lot about the world, and we can use that knowledge to make predictions and change the world. And yet, it looks as if all that reaches us from the world are these patterns of photons at the back of our eyes and disturbances of air at our ears. And the question is always, how could you, how could you resolve that conundrum? And one way, going back to Plato and Aristotle, has been to say, well, it, a whole lot of it is built in in the first place. We don't actually have to learn that abstract structure. It's just there. Maybe it evolved. Maybe if you're Plato, it was in a, a past life. And then the other approach going all the way back to Aristotle has been to say, well, if you just have enough data, if you just had enough stuff to learn, then you could develop this kind of abstract knowledge of the world. And again, going back to Plato and Aristotle, we kind of ping pong back and forth between those two approaches to trying to solve the problem. And sort of good old fashioned AI said, well, if we just, you know, famously, uh, uh, Roger Shanks said, well, if we just had like a summer's worth of interns, we'll figure out all of our knowledge about the world, Mm -hmm. we'll write it all down, and we'll program it into a computer. And that turned out not to be a very successful project. And then the alternative, the kind of neural net idea was, well, if we just have enough data and we have some learning mechanisms, then the learning mechanisms will just be able to pull out the information from the data and that's kind of where we are now that that's the latest that's the latest iteration in this back and forth between having building in knowledge and and learning the knowledge from the data
0: one question i have for you is is the difference between the way our machines learn and the way human brains learn just of temporary interest to us now i mean can you imagine us kind of blowing past this moment and building machines that we just we know are developing their intelligence in a way that is totally unlike the way we do it biologically and yet it is successful it becomes successful on all fronts without our building any analogous process into them and we just lose sight of the fact that it was ever interesting to compare the ways we do it I mean they, they, there's an effective way to do it in a brute force way on every front that will will matter to us or, or do you think that there's some problems for which it will be impossible to generate you know true artificial intelligence unless we have a deeper theory about how biological systems do it?
3: Well I think we already can see that. so one of the reasons one of the interesting things is that there's this whole really striking revival of interest in AI among people in AI in cognitive development, for example. And it's because we're starting to come up against the limits of this kind of pattern of having uh, this technique of doing a lot of statistical inference from big data sets. So there are lots of examples, for instance, even if you're thinking about things like image recognition, where, you know, if you have something that looks like a German shepherd, it'll recognize it as a German shepherd. But if you just have something that to a human just looks like a mass that has the same textural superficial features as the German Shepherd, it will also recognize it as a German Shepherd. Hmm. You know, if it sees a car that's suspended in the air and flooded, it will report this is a car parked by the side of the road and so forth. And there's there's a zillion examples that are like that. In fact, there's a whole kind of area of these adversarial examples where you can show that the machine is not actually making the right Decision and it's because it's only paying attention to the sort of superficial features and in particular the machines are very bad at making generalizations. So even if you you know taught alpha, teach AlphaZero how to play chess and then you said all right we're going to just change the rules a little bit so now the rooks are going to are going to be able to move diagonally and you're going to want to capture the queen instead of the king. That kind of difference, which for a human who had learned chess would be really easy to adjust to, for a uh, the more more recent ai systems leads to this problem they call catastrophic forgetting which is having to relearn everything all over again when you get yeah. a new data set so in principle of course you know there's no in principle reason why we couldn't have an intelligence that operated completely differently from the way that that say human children learn but human children are a demonstration case of the capacities of an intelligence, presumably in some sense a computational intelligence, because that's the best way we have of understanding how human brains work. But that's the best example we have of a system that actually really works to be intelligent. And, and nothing that we have now is really even in the ballpark of being able to do the same kinds of things that those systems, that system can do. So in principle, it might be that we would figure out some totally different way of, of being intelligent. But at the moment the best case we have is you know a 4-year-old uh, a 4-year-old human child and we're very 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 far from being able to simulate that you know i think part of it is if if people had just labeled the new techniques by saying statistical inference from large data sets instead of calling it artificial intelligence i think we would be having a very different kind of conversation even though statistical inference from large data sets turns out to be a, an incredibly powerful tool more powerful than we might have thought
0: which should remind people how Alarmingly powerful it is in narrow cases. When you extrapolate that kind of process to anything else we could conceivably care about, you know, the the recognition of emotion in a human face and voice, say, now again coming at this not in a AGI way where this is, you know, we have cracked the code of you know what intelligence is on some level and and built it from the bottom up, but in, in a piecemeal way where we take the you know, the hundred most interesting cognitive problems and find brute force methods to crack them. It's amazing to consider how quickly a solution can appear. And once it does, and this is the point I've always made about so-called human level intelligence, for any ability that we actually do find a, an AI solution, even a narrow one in the case of you know, chess or arithmetic, once that solution is found, you're never talking about human level intelligence. It's always superhuman. So the moment we get anything like a system that can behave or learn like a, a four-year-old child, it won't be at, at human level even for a second because you're, you're not going to, you'd have to degrade all of its other abilities that you could cobble together to support it. You wouldn't make it worse than your iPhone as a calculator, right? So it's already going to be superhuman.
3: Yeah but i mean you know i think there's a there's a there's a question though about exactly what different kinds of problems require and how you solve those problems and i think an idea that is is pretty clearly there in the computer science and neuroscience is that there's trade offs between different kinds of properties of a solution that aren't just because we happen to be biological humans but are built into the very nature of trying to solve the problem and in some ways the most striking thing about the progress of AI all through has been what people sometimes call Moravich's paradox, which is that actually the things that really impress us as humans are the things that we're not very good at, like doing arithmetic or, right. or playing chess. So I think of these sometimes as being uh, like the corridas of nerd machismo. So the things that you have to just be, have a particular kind of kind of ability that most people don't have, and then really train it up to do really well. It turns out those things are things that computers are good at doing. On the other hand, if you uh, the, uh, an example I give is my grandson who's three, play something that we call Addy Chess. His name is Atticus. So how do you play Addy Chess? Well, what, the way you play Addy Chess is you take all the pieces off the board and then you throw them in the wastebasket, and then you pick them up out of the wastebasket and you put them more or less in the same places they were in before, and then you take them all off and throw them in the wastebasket again. And it turns out that Adi Chess is actually a lot harder than Grandmaster Chess because Adi Chess means actually manipulating objects in the real physical world so that you have to figure wherever it is that that piece lands in the wastebasket, whatever orientation it is, I can pick it up and perform the motor actions that are necessary to get it on the board. And that turns out to be incredibly difficult. If you, you know, go and see any robotics lab, they have to put. Big walls around the robots to keep them from destroying each other. Even trying to do incredibly simple tasks like picking up objects off of a tray. And there's another thing about Eddie that makes it really different from what even very, very powerful, powerful artificial artificial intelligence can do. Which is, as you as you said, what you can, what these new systems can do is you can take what people sometimes call an objective function. You can say to them, "Look, this is what I want you to do. Given this." set of input, I want you to produce this set of output. Given this set of moves, I want you to get the highest score, or I want you to win at this game. And if you specify that, it turns out that these neural net learning mechanisms are actually remarkably good at solving those problems without a lot of additional information, except just here's a million examples of the input, and here's a million examples of the output. But of course, what human beings are doing all the time is going out and making their own objectives. They're going out and creating new objectives, creating new ideas, creating new goals. Goals that are not the goals that anyone has created before, even if they might look kind of silly, like playing at a chess.
2: Now, we're going to finish by returning to the concerns of value alignment and the control questions, which sent Sam down the worrying path of artificial superintelligence in the first place. But this time, we're going to hear some robust pushback on just how valid this concern might be. Our final guest is one who has appeared on Making Sense three times for fascinating and wide-ranging discussions. This is David Deutsch. If the nightmares of superintelligent machines inadvertently trampling us with as little regret as we might have for landing a jumbo jet on an anthill have started to scare you, perhaps David's conception of intelligence will ease your mind at least a bit. David views intelligence in such a way that a true ASI system hasn't even been conceived of, let alone built. He would contend that the kind of general intelligence that humans display relies on creativity and conjecture which draw from a mysterious source that a machine could not access until we have an explanation for it. That is to say that any AI that we build will always be beholden to our morality and could not escape it and become more than a tool. This, of course, does not allow us to dodge the kinds of societal and political upheaval which narrow AI and machine learning techniques might unleash, but it at least provides a perspective which might counter fears that the AI technical existential threat is a matter of fact. David's ideas are deeply developed and quite intricate. A full listen of this episode is highly recommended. But even for this clip, you'll need to appreciate a concept of what he calls a universal explainer, which describes a system that has the ability to create explanations, which are prerequisites for any kind of self recursive improvement. He ultimately grounds this ability to create universal explanations in a system's hardware rather than its software, and puts us humans in a position that is, in the relevant ways, part of the highest level and unconquerable in the ways that thinkers like Sam and Bostrom worry about. This is not to say that there is no danger as we develop these kinds of hardware systems but it's of a more familiar nature than the ai fears of alien superintelligent godlike entities. Sam remains unconvinced, but here is their exchange from episode 22, Surviving the Cosmos, where David lays out his conception of knowledge and intelligence and casts the worries of ai safety as rife with mistakes which are, in fact, causing some rather big missed opportunities for knowledge creation.
0: So you, so you seem to be saying that, that that we alone among all the Earth's species have achieved a kind of cognitive escape velocity, and we're capable of understanding everything. And you you contrast this view with um, what you call parochialism, uh, which is a view that I have often expressed, and uh, you know, many scientists have expressed. As Max Tegmark was on my podcast a few podcasts back, and and we more or less agreed about. This thesis, and the, the, so the thesis of parochialism is just evolution hasn't designed us to fully understand the nature of reality. We're we're not, you know, either the very small, the very large, the very fast, the very old. These are these are not domains in which our our intuitions about what is real or what is logically consistent have been tuned up in any in any way by evolution. And insofar as we've made progress here, it has been by a kind of happy accident, and it's an accident which gives us no reason to believe that we can, by dint of this accident, travel as far as we might like across the horizon of what is knowable. So, which is to say that if a super-intelligent alien came to earth for the purpose of explaining all that is knowable to us, uh, he or she may make no more headway with us than you would if you were attempting to teach the principles of quantum computation to a chicken. And so I want you to talk about why that analogy doesn't run through. Why why parochialism, this notion that we are we just we occupy this a kind of cognitive niche that there is really no good evolutionary reason to expect we can fully escape. Why that why that doesn't hold true.
9: Yes. Well, you actually made two or three different arguments there, all of which are wrong. So Oh, nice. Um <laughs> <laughs> So let me start with the, with the, with the chicken thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there the, the point is the universality of computation. The um, thing about explanations is they, they consist of knowledge, which is a form of uh, information. And information can only be processed in basically one way, that is with computation of the kind invented by Babbage and Turing. There is only one mode of computation available to physical objects, and that's the Turing mode. And uh, we already know that the computers we have, like the ones through which we're having this conversation, are universal in the sense that given the right program, they can perform any transformation uh, of information whatsoever, Mm. including knowledge creation, if we only knew how to program that. Now there's a there are two important caveats to that there are two things that can limit that one is lack of memory lack of computer memory lack of information storage capacity and the other is lack of speed or lack of time mm. so uh, apart from that the computers we have the brains that we have any computers that will ever be built in the future or can ever be built anywhere in the universe has the same repertoire that's the principle of the universality of computation. Right, That means that the reason why I can't persuade a chicken has to be either that its uh, neurons are too slow, which uh, I don't think is right. They don't differ very much from ours. Mm. Or it doesn't have enough memory, which it certainly doesn't. Or it doesn't have the right knowledge. So it doesn't have the uh, knowledge of How to learn language, uh, how to learn what an explanation is, and so on. It's not the right. It's not the right chicken. (laughs) It's it's um, it's not the right animal. If you had said chimpanzee, then uh, my guess would be that uh, the the brain of a chimpanzee could contain the knowledge of how to learn language, etc. But there's no way of giving it to giving that knowledge to it, short of surgery, Mm. sort of. Uh, nanosurgery, uh, which would be presumably very immoral to perform. Right. But in principle, it, it uh, I, I think it could be done because we, uh, the, uh, the chimpanzee's brain isn't that much smaller than ours. And uh, we have a whole lifetime to fill our memory. So we're not short of memory. Our thinking itself is not limited by available memory. Now, What if these aliens have a lot more memory than us? What if they have a lot more speed than us? Well, we already know the answer to that. We've been improving our memory capacity and our speed of computation for thousands of years already uh, with the invention of things like writing, writing implements, uh, just language itself, which enables more than one person to work on the same problem and to coordinate uh, their understanding of it with each other. Uh, that also allows an, an increase in speed compared with what an unaided human would be able to do. In the future, uh, currently we use computers, and uh, in, in the future we, we can use computer implants and so on. So if the knowledge that this alien uh, wanted to impart to us really did involve more than the 100 gigabytes or whatever the capacity of our brain is, uh, if, it, if it involved a, a terabyte, then uh, we could easily, easily, I say easily, in, in, in principle in it's principle. easy, it doesn't violate any laws of physics that uh, we could simply enhance our brains in the same way. So there can't be any fundamental reason within the explanation why we can't understand it.
0: And this all, this all falls out of the, the concept of the universality of computation. That there is no yes, that alternate does. version. So, yes. so less, this seems to bring us to um, the topic of AI, which I only recently, uh, recently as in the, the last beginning of this year, become very interested in. I've come down very much on the side of there is something worth worrying about here in terms of our building intelligent machines that do undergo something like an intelligence explosion where they get away from us. They, We build something that can make recursive self-improvements to itself, and it becomes a form of uh, intelligence which stands in relation to us the way we stand in relation to chickens or chimps or or anything else that can't effectively link up with our cognitive horizons. And I, I take it based on uh, what you I've heard you say in a few contexts that, that you don't really share those fears, and I imagine that, that you're Sanguinity is, is based to some degree on the, what we've been talking about, about the, in, in principle that there is just computation and it's universal and you can traverse any distance between entities as a result. Talk about the picture of, of uh, our building super-intelligent machines in light of what we've just been
9: discussing. Uh, you know, the, the, the picture that people paint of this is that an AI is a kind of machine and that it will design a better machine and they will design even better machines and so on. But that is not what it it is. An AI is a kind of program. Mm. And programs which have creativity will be able to design better programs. Now, these better programs will not be qualitatively any different from us. They can only differ from us in the quality of their knowledge and in their speed and memory capacity. The speed and memory capacity we can also share in because the technology that would make better computers will also, in the long, you know, in the long run, be able to make better implants for our, our brains, just as they now make better dumb computers, which we use to multiply our intelligence and creativity already. So the, the thing that would make better AIs would also make better people, by the same token, The AIs are not fundamentally different from people. They are people. They would have culture. Whether they can improve or not will depend on their culture, which will initially be our culture. So the problem of AIs is the problem of humans. Now, you know, I think more than most people, that humans are dangerous. Hmm. And there is a real problem with how to manage the world in in the face of growing knowledge to make sure that knowledge isn't misused because in some ways it need only be misused once to end the whole project of humanity so humans are dangerous and to that extent ais are also dangerous but the idea that ais are somehow more dangerous than humans is racist <laughs> there's there's no basis for it at all and on a smaller scale the the worry that AIs are somehow going to get away from us, is the same worry that people have about wayward teenagers. Wayward teenagers are also AIs, which Mm. have ideas which are different from ours. And the impulse of human beings throughout the centuries and millennia has been to try to prevent them doing this, just like it is now the ambition of AI people to think of ways of shackling the AIs so they won't be able to get away from us and have different ideas. And that is the mistake which will, on the one hand, hold up the growth of knowledge, and on the other hand, make it very likely that if AIs are invented and are shackled in this way, there will be a slave revolt, and quite right too. Right. I aspire to
0: be able to utter the phrase, you've just made three arguments there and all of them are wrong. But uh, there's uh, two claims you made there which I worry about. One is, well, one, when you look at the details, let me just take the, the time.
2: There is so much unknown about the prospect and potential of AI. You've heard Sam and several of his guests outline the possibility of an existential technical threat. You've heard others claim that this worry is unfounded and relies on some critical conceptual errors regarding the nature of intelligence itself and you've heard others worry about the inevitable arms race and weaponization concerns that come with this territory. We've also considered the strange ethical landscape of possibly giving rise to consciousness in artificial systems, or its convincing appearance, which might be even more difficult to morally navigate. We've also heard about the confusion that might be growing when machine learning techniques are promoted and advertised as AI, even as we underestimate the power of this method to quickly achieve superhuman performance in narrow domains. The topic of artificial intelligence is both novel and ancient, conjuring up deep questions as to the nature of consciousness, the essence of knowledge, and the controversial relationship between something's intelligence and apparent humanness to its moral value. In the coming decades, some of the included conversations will surely sound prophetic, and others like hysterical science fiction, But even if you doubt the probability of a certain outcome, letting your mind treat it as an urgent and pressing concern can lead to fruitful insights and surprisingly beautiful and poetic efforts. Here's an example. The first voice you heard in this compilation who is convinced of a looming technical existential threat was that of Eliezer Yudkowsky. In a now somewhat famous paper, Yudkowsky set out to advise the field of computer science and give some general guidelines on how one might go about giving instructions to an asi imagine having a super intelligent genie or sovereign sitting in front of you you've just successfully built it and it is awaiting your command or directive what would you say what could you say what should you say and could you put that command into a precise mathematical language So that the ASI could faithfully execute it and not misunderstand it in any way that would steamroll us or otherwise go terribly wrong? While imagining this moment, Yudkowsky explained that we should be trying to command it with what he called our coherent extrapolated volition. He defined it like this Our coherent extrapolated volition is our wish if we knew more, thought faster, Were more the people we wished we were? Had grown up farther together? Where the extrapolation converges rather than diverges? Where our wishes cohere rather than interfere? Extrapolated as we wish that extrapolated. Interpreted as we wish that interpreted. That is a goal worth implementing and understanding how to convey in any language, whether the intelligence receiving and delivering it be super, artificial, or just plain old human. So, as promised, here is suggested reading, listening, and watching on the subject of AI. The episodes of Making Sense featured in this compilation were episodes 116, 94, 53, 280, 56, 153, and 22. The full conversations are well worth hearing to do justice to the nuanced arguments. Nick Bostrom's Superintelligence was probably the most influential book on Sam's thinking in this area. It's a powerful argument in favor of devoting more attention to the possibility of AI as a true existential threat. The aforementioned Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark and The Age of AI by Daniel P. Huttenlocker Eric Schmidt, and Henry Kissinger, and 25 Ways of Looking at AI, which includes entries from both Stuart Russell and Alison Gopnik, are all fantastic books. Russell also authored an excellent recent book entitled Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. Martin Ford has two books which are highly recommended, entitled Rule of the Robots and Architects of Intelligence. For some counter-arguments and other approaches which doubt the inevitability of existentially destructive AI, David Deutsch's Beginning of Infinity takes a different run at intelligence, which is skeptical of a value divergence problem. And Gary Marcus's Rebooting AI makes a case that AGI or ASI are much more difficult achievements than we are led to believe. Justin Smith's recent book, The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, contains a chapter which attempts to throw cold water on the worry around consciousness emerging in artificial systems. That final poetic passage in the closing remarks is from an Eliezer Yudkowsky paper entitled Coherent Extrapolated Volition, which was published by the Machine Intelligence Research Institute in 2004. At the moment, there is so much in the film and television space about AI that I'm sure every listener will have their favorites. Here are just a few of ours. The HBO series Westworld especially the first season, is excellent viewing and explores many ethical issues about the consciousness of AI, or at least our interaction with AI systems which appear conscious. The show Black Mirror has delved into AI questions in a few well-done episodes. Be Right Back from the second season is highly recommended. The original Twilight Zone series has several wonderful episodes about AI, including Uncle Simon, from Agnes with Love, and The Lonely. Ex Machina is a film worth watching that focuses on the challenges of containment. Her is also a terrific film which looks at our emotional relationship to AI and to our devices. Sam delivered a 14-minute TED talk on the subject of AI control, which lays out his argument and features excellent graphic accompaniments. There is plenty from the documentary world concerning AI. Alpha Go is a well-done film which chronicles the development of the system which we mentioned several times in this episode. And for a music recommendation, the piece you're listening to right now was composed using software billed as artificially intelligent, developed by Google's Magenta, which further blurs, or perhaps sharpens, the line between human and machine. This episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro, and read by me, Megan Phelps-Roper.